The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now let me start with a question. When was the last time you felt wonder? When was the last time you felt wonder? When was the last time that you had an encounter with something that was so surprising and so beautiful that it made you forget about yourself for just a second and left you standing in kind of a speechless awe? A few weeks ago at my dinner table, my five-year-old was telling a story to Emily and I. It was a story that involves potty humor, so I will not relay this story to you in this format. But it was one of those stories that it kind of builds and builds until you reach a very unexpected punchline. And it's kind of a gotcha moment to the hearer. Uh, it's, this, it's, again, a little bit gross. But you know how sometimes when a child is telling a joke, sometimes they stumble through it and they kind of forget key, key details. Then they have to kind of spin back and then you kind of lose the impact of the story. Because for whatever reason, there was magic in the air that night. Nate was on fire. He was telling the story exactly as it ought to be told. But this time... I mean, he was absolutely crushing it. He was, he was locked in. His voice was just right. His eye contact was just right. His posture, his delivery, the pace with which he told the story, all of it was perfect. And as he inched closer and closer towards the punchline, telling the story through a kind of wry grin, you could see the brightness just exploding in his eyes as he awaited the golden reveal. That was the punchline of this story. And again, that involved potty humor. But I remember thinking, sitting in that moment, like, man, I would not trade this moment for anything. Because five years ago, this person did not exist. Five years ago, this person wasn't even a thing. And yet here we are at this dinner table. He was brimming over with joy, telling this goofy little story. And I remember thinking that this person is a little miracle, and God allowed him to be here with me and to be with my wife in that moment. And it was truly a moment that was wonderful full of wonder at just how perfect and brilliant it all was. And just for like a brief glimpse second, I just found myself like filled with a, with a joyous kind of wonder at the miracle that was that dinner table conversation. Have you ever felt wonder before? Have you ever experienced anything like that for just a slice of a sliver of a second? You're like, man, this means something. Now, as we've already said several times, tonight is the first Sunday at Advent, which means we are almost at Christmas. Advent is about building anticipation to Christmas morning when we celebrate that Christ arrived. And Andy Williams tells us, rightfully so, that this is the most wonderful time of the year, right? The most wonder hyphen full with two L's time of the year. This is the time of the year where we get slivers and glimpses of that wonder that is the incarnation. The air is different this time of the year. The room is different whenever you sing Christmas music. When your house is filled with the smell of cinnamon and balsam fir candles, it's just different, right? And so it's fitting for what Christmas celebrates, the central wonder of human history, when God sent his son Jesus to take on flesh, to become a man, an event we call the Incarnation. Moments ago, we sang what is undoubtedly the, the goat of Christmas slash Advent hymns, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And the third verse, I'm going to have it on the screen, it says this, speaking of Christ, come to earth to taste our sadness, he whose glories knew no end. By his life, he brings us gladness, our redeemer, shepherd, friend, leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall, 
This, the everlasting wonder, Christ was born the Lord of all. The everlasting wonder, Christ, the one by whom and for whom all things were created, was born. What a mystery this story is. The the mystery of how it all works, how the logic sort of pieces together. God becomes man. How those two things can actually operate and cooperate. It's a mystery. The mystery of why God would choose to do this. Why did this one, the one whose glories knew no end, why would he choose to come taste our sadness, to take on flesh and blood, to die? In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul describes the gospel story, beginning with the incarnation, as the mystery of godliness. But Paul and the hymn writer aren't just saying that these things are wonderful and mysterious in a um, this-is-difficult-to-wrap-our-brains-around kind of way. What they're saying is that this event is truly wonderful. It's so full of wonder that it fills us with awe, awe and delight and just kind of fixes our gaze on the kind of God that would dream this sort of thing up. And so beginning today and for the next five Sundays, we're going to revel in the everlasting wonder. We're going to look at the amazing truth of what God has done for us through and in the incarnation and wonder at this everlasting wonder, a wonder that will remain wonderful generation after generation after generation. We, we will never tap this thing out or grow weary or exhaust the story of God becoming man in Christ. And so this evening, we're starting in a little bit of uh, uh, an unexpected place, Psalm 8 which was just read. By the way, we will also be in Hebrews chapter 2. If you want to flip to Hebrews 2 and keep your finger there, we'll, we'll turn there in just a moment. It's fitting that if we're going to talk about God becoming man, that we would take a moment to actually talk about what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be human? First, establish what does it mean to be created in God's image? To sort of look at these questions and wrestle through that. And we're going to do that from Psalm 8. This little poem or, or song in Psalm 8, the, poem, the poet rather twice declares the majesty of God's name that's driven by the poet's reflection on God's creativity and God's incredible inclusion of, of us, our kind, in his work in the world. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the Avengers. Avenger, singular, sorry. (laughs) My kids watched an Avengers movie earlier today, so it's fresh on the mind. Now, the Psalms are a book of poetry. Poems and songs written to be sung by and recited by God's people. So responsive readings, what we do Sunday after Sunday, this is what Psalms were often intended to be, were these kind of responsive corporate worship readings and songs. This particular song opens and closes with the declaration, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Again, the occasion for this psalm is it's just a kind of celebration, a declaration of praise with a reflection about God's incredible work in creation. Verse 1, Lord, how majestic is your name? You have set your glory above the heavens. God, you have set your glory above the heavens. As unreal as the aurora borealis is, God's infinite glory is even unrealer, the psalmist is saying. Your glory is set above the heavens. It's more lovely than the stars, than the planets, than the eclipses, than everything that we can behold with the telescope. God's glory is set above that. It is beyond that. Verse 2, he says, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The psalmist is making the point that even the adorable, incoherent babbling of babies is an avenue where God makes his glory and creativity known to us. 
He says that those who would reject God are silenced by the chattering of the little ones. That the baby's baby talk is even a testament to God's creativity. Right, so even a couple of times in the service, we've heard babies make noise. Right, the scripture would have us to hear babies crying in here as God making his glory known to us out of the babies and infants, the, the mouths of babies and infants. The psalmist is rejoicing in the fact that God has created everything, that everything comes from God's hand, and that everything is a testament to God's graciousness and glory and grandeur. God creates everything from nothing to make something of his glory and might tangible to us, to show us how big, grand, and glorious he is. One thing that's really important to to point out as you talk about God's creation, and St. Athanasius makes this point in his little book on the Incarnation, is that God makes from nothing. There's there's no pre-existing material that God fashions into everything. God creates from nothing. And the reason that's important is because that would mean that there was something prior to God that created the stuff that God used to make everything. And the scriptures would have us to see that, no, God makes everything that exists. That there is no one who is beyond, above, before, precedes God. God is the one from whom all things emanate. And God made, not just because he needed something to do, not because he was bored, otherwise that would be a deficiency on his part. No, he makes everything out of abundance. Like a fountain so full, so so. Uh, so full of water and, and so excessive with water that it spills up everywhere. In the beginning, there was only void. And God, from love and with his infinite creati- creativity, makes everything that exists. And because this God made it, it means everything, even baby talk, is charged with his glory and grandeur. You know that feeling of a kind of smallness that comes from being in front of something astronomical and like soul-achingly sublime. Just something so beautiful, it takes your breath away. A few months back, my family went to Dollywood. Dollywood is not the sublime thing, but it's, <laughs> I just thought about it. set you up to think that. Have you ever been to Dollywood? I was telling somebody, in the best kind of way, Dollywood is like Cracker Barrel, but a theme park. <laughs> in the best kind of way. Cracker Barrel's great, Dollywood is great. Anyway, on the, on the way up, we were listening to this kid's podcast about the moon landing. So there's this interesting history for kids podcast my kids totally eat up. And so they, you know, the lady covers different periods in history, and she was talking about the moon landing, you know, if you believe in that sort of thing. <laughs> she has this, she included this incredible quote from Neil Armstrong that I thought, like, it brought tears to my eyes as we were, like, pulling in and, like, seeing the beautiful leaves and, you know, knowing the glory of Dollywood that was to await, you know, waiting us. It brought tears to my eyes. Neil Armstrong said when he was like floating out in the depths of space, it suddenly struck me that the tiny pea, pretty and blue, was the earth. I put up my thumb and shut one eye, and my thumb blotted out the planet earth, and I didn't feel like a giant. Instead, I felt very, very small. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine looking out into the window of space, who knows how many miles from earth, and then you're confronted with the realization that me and my problems and shoot, I mean, our monuments, our mountains, our cities are actually infinitesimal. You can blot it out with thumb and one eye. When we see all that God has made, when we, when we look at the work of his heavens, the, the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars, the leaves this year, we're like, good grief. Who are we that you would be mindful of us, that you would look on our humble state and be moved by compassion? that you would make us, that you would care for us, it's almost unbelievable. 
that's exactly what the psalmist says in verse 3. As the psalmist is reflecting on God's handiwork, he's struck with this thought. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What is man that you are mindful of him? The psalmist asks. I cannot, the psalmist says, when I look up and consider these things, I, can't, I, I can almost not even believe that there's a God who is behind this, who creates us and creates us in the manner that he does create us. Verse five. He says, yet you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. What is man that you are mindful of us, and yet you are mindful of us, and you have made us, verse 5, a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now, there's a little bit of mystery as to what exactly the psalmist means here. That phrase, heavenly beings, could be translated to, to be speaking about any occupant of heaven. So he could be referring to God, he could be referring to angels. But the point that the psalmist is making is it, it's amazing that God gave us this privilege such that we are just a little bit lower than the occupants of heaven in terms of our dignity and the, the task with which he has tasked us. The scriptures teach this important concept that all humans are created in God's image that God stamped us with a kind of uniqueness that doesn't belong to any other aspect of creation. Verse 5, it says, you have, uh, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, and what? Crowned him with glory and honor. Listen to that. We have been crowned as a, as a species with glory and honor. There's one other time that glory is mentioned in the scripture. It's in verse 1. God's glory is set above the heavens. It's like God's graciously, like by virtue of making us in his image, stamped us with a, with a kind of glory, been crowned with glory and honor. Then verses six through eight, he says, you have given mankind over the uh, uh, dominion over the works of your hands. God created a world and he gave it to mankind to oversee it. Verse seven, it lists out the sheep, the oxen, the beasts of the fields, birds, fish, the Loch Ness monster, you know, all of it. It's all been given by God to be governed not exploited, but named and ruled over by humanity. This is a direct reference to Genesis 1.28, where God makes humanity and commissions humanity, go and have dominion over my planet. Go and have dominion over my creation. God created Adam and Eve and placed them in this garden. And uh, Adam and Eve are tasked with expanding the boundaries of the garden, of taking the goodness of Eden and sending it elsewhere. To make music, to create art, to take sweet potatoes and boil them, and, and mash them down, and then mix brown sugar and pecans with it, and mix it in a little paste, and you put it on top of it, and you bake it for a couple hours, and you eat it seven times on Thanksgiving weekend. That's part of what it means to be created in God's image. This kind of creativity and this uh, ability that God has given us to take his creation, his good creation, and make it great. And it results in verse 9, the psalm, ending once again on God's majesty. After reflecting on the majesty of God's creation, the majesty of God's incredible regard for the specks and the peons that we feel ourselves to be, he concludes by saying, O Lord, our Lord, majestic is your name in all the earth. So God creates everything. God crafts together mankind, and this psalm gives us a glimpse into a few insights as to what it means to be human. The first insight is this. We have dignity. You and I, 
Every soul in this room, every soul in this building, every soul on this planet has dignity. We are loved and fashioned by God uniquely. You know, I wonder if this is one of those things that on the one hand we hear so often, we, it's totally lost its power, but on the other hand, we, we have so given ourselves over to dehumanizing thinking that we, we haven't even begun to consider how beautiful this really is. I was listening to a, an interview not that long ago with a, a lady named Nancy Piercy, uh, apologist and, and teacher theologian, uh, on her book, Love Thy Body. And she was talking about what it means to be human. And she referenced a well-known MIT scientist who says that human beings are, quote, big bags of skin full of biomolecules operating by the laws of physics and chemistry. This MIT scientist says that we are essentially meat sacks that are zapped with a sort of electricity for a few decades before we're reduced to compost. And it's like, consider what the Bible actually says about us, about you and I. We are crowned with glory and honor. Imagine a glorious God that makes from his glory and love all that he makes has some measure of his thumbprint on it, right? So it is the case for us that we are created in his image. We are given a kind of dignity by virtue of being God's image bearers. That is unique to us amongst everything. It's worth mentioning here that the world-changing teaching of the Bible. It's incredibly democratic. Man and woman, rich and poor, high class, low class, all skin color. We are crowned with glory and honor. We, are, we share in the glorious nature of God himself and possess a dignity that nothing else can lay claim to. This summer I was teaching, um, when I was on sabbatical, I taught a group of uh, elementary and middle, age, middle school aged boys at Camp McCall. So I had the privilege of going to Camp McCall and teaching them for a couple of nights. And the theme for the summer was on foundations. You know, what are, what are the, some of the most basic truths of the Bible, of the faith? And I thought it'd be appropriate to start here, start with the image of God. And so I got together a bunch of pictures of animals that boys would totally be obsessed with, right? So I got pictures of uh, sharks, like blood in their teeth, like dolphin flesh hanging off their teeth. You know, again, boys love that stuff. Sharks, bears, roaring, you know, lions, dinosaurs, other sundry, deadly, monstrous creatures. And I put up the pictures and let the boys ooh and ah for a second. I was like, yeah, let's look at this shark. Yeah, sharks are awesome. No lions rule. Dinosaurs for life. You know, sort of response from these kids. And I put up the pictures and I said, you know one thing that all of these creatures have in common? What's one thing that all of these incredible, awe-inspiring ridiculously cool creatures have in common. None of them are you. Not one of them can hold a candle to who you are by virtue of you being made in God's image. We are crowned with glory and honor. Every one of us. But with that dignity comes a tremendous duty. Verse 6 Again, we're told that God has given man dominion over the work of his hands. Implicated by this command is that we are given a task by God and are therefore accountable to God. We are given the responsibility to exercise dominion over his world. We therefore are accountable to the God who gave us that responsibility. We are to know, to honor, to love, and to reflect God we are to, to give our, our love, our allegiance, our obedience, our worship, our devotion, 
all of these things we are to give to God as the source of all life, as the one who gives us dignity and responsibility. Again, if you go read the garden account in Genesis 1 and 2, what you'll see is that man is given free reign. They're, they're given, Adam and Eve are given the freedom to eat of every tree of the garden except one. They're restricted access to one tree. There is one single prohibition. And of all of the things that we could say about that, one thing that we know for sure is that what God intends for humanity to do and to be is to demonstrate love, loyalty, and allegiance to him. The tree represents the limits that's placed on humanity. It represents God's rule in man's midst, and we are to honor and obey our creator. Like Even if you think about the shape of the psalm, twice, how majestic is your name in all the earth? The psalmist is caught up in who God is, first and foremost. And so we have a duty, a duty to respond to God as majestic, the one who made us, who didn't have to make us, but the one who is a God of immense creativity, glory, and majesty. And far from this being a cumbersome and burdensome thing, to know, love, enjoy, and obey God is a joy. I mentioned earlier Athanasius. Where we, we have some folks in our church who are studying a book called In the Incarnation, written a long time ago uh, by a church father, St. Athanasius. And one of my favorite things to come from that book is he says that man's duty is to abide in blessedness. Think about that. To abide in blessedness. To know, love, and enjoy, and obey God is to abide in blessedness. But when we consider all the things that we were made for, we think about that very lofty kind of claim. We are to abide in blessedness. We're to honor God, and we've been created in his image. Doesn't that really make the fall in Genesis chapter 3 a fall? It's a tragedy, isn't it? Part of what makes the fall so tragic, and the bad news so bad, is this. It's the fact that we were created for more than this, for more than this corruption and sin and death. As Switchfoot once said, we were meant to live for so much more, and that is a deeply, deeply biblical idea. Part of what makes the fall so tragic and the bad news so bad is we chose life apart from God. We chose to be apart from him. We chose to transgress his boundaries, to break his commands, to disrupt fellowship with him. We chose that willingly. Our parents did, and, and, and we ratify their choice regularly. Again, Athanasius is helpful here. He says that if God is the source of being, then being near to him and loving him is to be fully human. It's like he's the juice that we're built to run on. So when we rebel and we, we distance ourselves from him, the opposite is true. To choose life apart from him is not to choose life at all. To choose sin is a kind of non-being. It's to choose to be something less than human. It's to choose Mud pies when we're offered a feast at sea. And so maybe you think about that, and you think about our original design, and you wonder, did we ruin it? Is, is the, the image of God that, that we crown with glory and honor, that's, like, that's all great on paper, but in reality, have we forfeited that? Sin has made us into what we are now. Is the image of God marred beyond repair? And, and this is really important. This, this is really important. This is where the incarnation comes in. By God becoming man, God doubles down on the good of his creation. We are creatures of immense glory made by God and for God. And Christmas, at least in part, is about God reaffirming all of that. Christ's incarnation reaffirms both our duty and dignity as humans. 
One pastor said, speaking of the incarnation and resurrection, he said, it is the ultimate validation of the human body, biology, personhood, matter, and the goodness of God's creation. But when we flip to the New Testament, it gets even better. We have dignity and we have duty, but because of the incarnation, we also have a destiny. Turn to Hebrews 2 real quick. Hebrews 2, in some ways you could argue, is an extended reflection on what it means that Christ became human. And in chapter 2, tell me if any of this sounds familiar. The author says this in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now when putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, he's reading Psalm 8. And he's, he's, he's reading it over his cornflakes, and he's reflecting on man and God's creation. And then he has a light bulb. He realizes something. He says, wait a second. Humans are called to rule. That's the task of what it means to be hum- humans. It's, we've been created with dignity and, and with this duty. But Jesus, when he took on flesh, and when he, he stood at the end of the Gospel of Matthew and said, all authority has been given to me, a light bulb goes off, and he says, Psalm 8 actually points to what Christ would come to do to perfectly fulfill, to complete what we were always supposed to be. Because upon Jesus' death and resurrection, he was given reign over everything in ways that we couldn't even imagine. Jesus was given authority even over death itself. Verse 8, he says, everything is under Christ's feet. Everything is under control. Even as we currently await Jesus' second coming and the complete removal of sin and death, Jesus is the true and better Adam perfectly fulfilling the duty that we've been given as a race. Jesus is the man, literally. And then I love verse 10. He almost says this in passing, that Jesus was, had done this in order to bring many sons to glory. You see that? It's like the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus, through his death, perfectly fulfilled everything that Psalm 8 anticipated and in his, like in the train of his robe, brings a restored humanity along with him. So Christ's incarnation reaffirms our duty and our dignity, but it also promises us a restoration as a race. The the mud that's been cast on our species and the image of God that's been marred, Christ came to restore in us. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
You see what he's saying? As we look at Jesus, the perfect man, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of the perfect man, the capital M man, the man who does it the way that it was always supposed to be done. We are transformed after his likeness. I recently watched a lecture from Michael Reeves, uh, and, and Michael Reeves in this lecture was talking about uh, how we often use the word sinless to describe Jesus. Sinless is this kind of negation, this negative word. And he says, if, if we're not careful, it can come across as something like joyless or funless or personalityless. Jesus is sinless. It's not, it's not really a very strong affirmation. But he says that we, we should think about what that entails for a second. For instance, Jesus, at every moment, was free from that feeling of regret for having done something he wished he wouldn't have done. Christ never experienced that. Jesus was free every moment of his life from the misery of self, uh, selfishness. He was free from the misery of being heartless or the, the misery of being petty or proud. Jesus was free of those miseries. And that's what it means for Christ to be sinless. And this is what humanity should be. And as we behold Christ and as we look on Christ and as we rejoice in Christ, Scripture tells us that we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. That's what Jesus is working out in his people, present tense, perfecting in us. He is unclouding all of the things that we were meant to be. But that's not all. It gets even better. Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21 will be on the screen. Paul again writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. As humans, we have a duty. Our purpose is to know, love, and enjoy God, to abide in his blessedness and rule over his creation on his behalf. We have an unparalleled dignity. We've been crowned with glory and honor, uniquely tasked as his image bearers in the world. And because of Christ's incarnation, we also have a destiny. The image of God is being restored in us. We are being made whole as we behold Christ. And we will one day be perfected inside and out. One day, even our bodies will be renewed as Christ's resurrected body was renewed. So how do, we, how do we apply this as we consider the truth of these scriptures? We apply it by saying Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic is the name of Jesus? Christmas is a, a reaffirmation of our dignity and our duty and a promise, a picture, a guarantee of our destiny as his renewed humanity. So this Christmas, this, this Advent season, imagine if every time we sang about the manger or baby Jesus, we saw God's immeasurable love in making us as humans. Every, every, what if every time we saw little baby Jesus in the manger, we were reminded that there is not a soul that is here that is an accident, that not one of us is purposeless, because Christ reaffirms our dignity in becoming one of us. What if every time we saw the manger of baby Jesus, we were reminded of God's commitment to remaking us as humans, to restore his image in us perfectly? What if every time we passed the nativity, we thought of our destiny with Jesus, our older brother, who is perfecting us and will one day resurrect us? This is the everlasting wonder that Christ the Lord 
The Christ was born the Lord of all. We are the occasion for his incarnation to unlock the glories of heaven to us. And so I wonder, maybe you're here this evening and you have never yet believed. Maybe you don't believe. I just, I just ask you to, to consider this. Could you believe? Could you look on the story of the Christian faith, the nativity, the, the songs about baby Jesus, and see what it means and respond with belief? Could you believe that all of the ruin and that heart decay that we are all too well acquainted with, that Jesus came to undo that by his Holy Spirit in us? That Jesus issues a promise of being made new totally. In your bulletin, you'll see a couple of questions for reflection for us. Some things for us to consider this week. How does the incarnation stir within you deeper love for Jesus? I mean, and, and could we pray, like whatever fallow ground is here, that the Lord this season would, would bust it up and let us see anew the glories of Christmas, the glory of this story, the story of the incarnation? How can this give us a, a deeper love and a deeper uh, heart, of, heart of gratitude to the Lord Jesus? How does the incarnation give you hope? How does it give you hope? How does it restore purpose in you? to see that our God became one of us? How does that reaffirm our dignity as humans? And how does that give us a hope of a new perfected heart and a new perfect unblemished life with God? And then the, the last question for reflection is, how does the incarnation press you into those mundane, normal human activities of life? The stuff that 98% of our time is devoted to, working, playing, eating, and drinking. Does the incarnation have anything to say about those acts, those events? This evening, we're gonna celebrate the incarnation by taking the supper, one of, the, one of the amazing stories about the gospel is that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And he invites his followers to a table, invites us to table with him. Lord Jesus gave us a meal, a physical embodied representation, a physical embodied word gave us a, a physical and embodied tangible uh, ordinance to celebrate as a church family. In this meal, whenever we take this meal, we eat this bread and we're reminded of Christ's actual broken body for us. When we drink the juice, we're reminded of Jesus' actual shed blood for us. And as we take the supper, it reminds us not, not just of Christ's love for us and, and taking on flesh. It reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ. That every one of us comes and receives the same grace from the same Lord Jesus and is given the same spirit. Eats from the same bread and the same cup. In just a few moments, uh, I'm going to pray to conclude our time. And then I'm going to walk through our communion liturgy piece. Um, when I'm praying, the band's going to come up and start playing. When I'm praying, uh, also two of our pastors are going to be posted up at these tables. Uh, we do have gluten-free bread available on the smaller plates. If you are gluten intolerant, you can just grab that. But for those who aren't gluten intolerant, our pastors will be breaking the bread and handing it to you. And as you take the elements, would you just return back to your seats, and I'll read Scripture, and we'll take it all together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we consider what your word has to say about what we are, we pray that we would be humbled. That we'd be humbled by your grandeur as it is seen in your creation and be humbled that you are mindful of us. That you are mindful of us both in terms of our creation and our redemption. We were undeserving of being created and undeserving of being redeemed and yet you have made us by your word and you have remade us 
are remaking us by your word. I pray that as we consider the incarnation during this season, that you would give us, for, for those of us who are hardened to this and are overly familiar with, with these scriptures and roll our eyes at the Christmas songs and are hardened to the power of these hymns, we, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, you would just break that up and you would help us to rejoice in you, rejoice in what you've come to do. I pray also for those of us who are overly sentimental about this time and every, everything is um, light and fluffy and... Uh, Everything's pretty and, and, and positive during this time. I pray that also you, you would break through that as well. And you would remind us of the gravity of what it means that our God became one of us to save us. To save us from death that we deserved. From judgment and wrath that we deserved. And that Advent is a solemn occasion. But mostly, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would, as, as we behold you that you would transform us from one degree of glory to another, that you would make this church filled with people delighting in Jesus and who look like Jesus in our, in our selflessness, in our love, in our commitment to you, Father, above all things, in our generosity, in our hospitality, in our gentleness and lowliness, all of it, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would work out in us as a church. As we take the supper this evening, we pray that you would work in our hearts, that you, make, you would make yourself known to us by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name.